Welcome to the FinTV podcast series, where we tap into the collective expertise of the world's leading supply chain, manufacturing, and digital innovators. My name is Maria Villablanca, the co-founder and CEO of Future Insights Network, and I'll be your host. Join us every week to hear the opinions, lessons, and general guidelines from the industry's leading minds. FinTV, insights for today's digital leaders. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of FinTV. I am joined today by Roddy Martin, who is the Chief Digital Strategist at Tracelink, uh, who's joining us from it looks like outer space. Thank you for joining us, Roddy. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks very much, Maria, and what a pleasure to, uh, uh, to participate in one of these. And I promise you, I'm not going to give you any outer space perspectives. We'll, we'll make it real practical down to earth. Supply chains are real operation space. So first, let me tell you about Tracelink. Tracelink uh, has focused on serialization and compliance uh, in the healthcare space. When I say healthcare, I mean pharmaceutical and healthcare. And it's really, you know, the world has laid down the traceability of all regulated drug products. And that's really what we focused on. But more importantly, we've built a supply chain platform to transform healthcare. So why digital strategist? Well, if you imagine a picture of a healthcare system all the way from contract manufacturers all the way to a patient in a hospital, you have this visual of long lines of systems all connected to each other. Well, the reality is if you talk to anyone in any one of those boxes, whether you're a distributor, logistics provider, or a manufacturer, uh, at best, they can see one partner upstream or one partner downstream. And you can't run a healthcare system like that. Um, you know, patients are looking for immediate uh, fulfillment, fulfillment of their needs. They might be in a hospital and you can't be, you know, waiting three weeks just because you didn't know that there was no product in the, in the supply chain. So this idea of, of putting all partners on a network and the best way to describe it is Amazon. Everybody is connected onto Amazon. They got my credit card. I place a transaction and they tell me that, you know, whatever I bought is going to be delivered in three days. That's basically what the Tracelink platform is all about. Very exciting. Uh, it's catching a lot of attention of supply chain officers who are saying, how on earth, if we have the aspiration of being patient-centric and patient-driven, how on earth do I get visibility of whether my products are in a hospital or not? And this is the way we're doing it. So very exciting role. It's a brand new space. But as I say, it's nothing new because that's what Amazon does. You've been, you've been, you've been in the supply chain space for quite some time. You've got experience in different types of industry sectors as well, don't you? Exactly. Well, you know, I, I couldn't have planned this career even if I'd sat down with a pen and paper and sketched it out. Uh, as, a, as an analyst for, you know, 12, 13 years, I crossed all industries and I had the privilege to work with really big companies like the Cisco's and the Procter & Gamble's and the Apple's of the world. Uh, and trust me, if you really think you understand supply chain, sit down and entertain a call from a Apple or a Procter & Gamble asking you about best practices. So, you know, as a consultant, as an analyst, you know, as a best practice, practice researcher, I've, I've been around the block and that's been really fun because I can now reflect on what I've seen that works, what good looks like, what bad looks like and share those insights with leaders as trusted advisor. Well, it puts you in a pretty unique position, doesn't it? I mean, especially given the circumstances right now to be able to give some credible advice of things that have worked or haven't worked. Right, exactly. And you know, 
you and I were just talking. I mean, we don't want to hear anything more about COVID. We know it's happening. It's not going to go away. We've got to deal with it. But I think the, the bigger question uh, in, in all of the supply chains leaders' minds is the fact that, you know, these disruptions are going to happen. They're going to happen with increasing frequency as we go forward into the future. How, what are we going to look like in the future so that when it does happen, we're more prepared than what we are? I mean, it, it's a bit of a nightmare watching to see how, uh, you know, hospitals are being referred to as apocalypse and, and uh, it's chaos and they can't find anything. And uh, they, you know, surgeons are buying kits off eBay. I mean, this is, you know, we're some of the biggest first world countries in the world, and yet we seem so totally unprepared for, for these crises. So I think it's going to be, what do we learn? How do we lead forward? What do we look like in 2025? Uh, and, and by the way, I think one of the most exciting aspects of this, we've all spoken about digital for how many years? You know, I always used to smile at the word, we're going to do digital. Well, we've always done digital. I mean, we always had systems that were digital. But this makes sense to start thinking about how we digitalize our business. How do we fundamentally take paperwork and all of the, uh, the menial tasks that have been done with spreadsheets and disconnected processes? How do we digitize the business so that things are happening? Forget about real, real time, but in as near real time as possible so that we don't wait three or four weeks to see something we see an event as it's happening and we don't land up in the scenario where, you know, we're responding to stuff that is five weeks old. Roddy, do you think, I mean, you know, in supply chain, yes, we've been talking about digital transformation and digitization for quite some time. We've also been talking about or brandishing about, you know, terms like VUCA. Do you really think that what's happening right now with COVID has, is going to give the opportunity to supply chain people to go, wait a second, this is, you know, this is completely different to VUCA, to, you know, the textbooks. Do we now need to throw out what we know and start afresh, learn what we've learned and position us for the supply chain of 2025? I'm so glad you asked that question. You know, one of my favorite, two of my favorite words are integrative and agility. Agility says, how resilient am I to change? And integrative is not integrated. It says, when I go into a doctor and I say I've got a headache, the doctor doesn't say, well, go buy a headache tablet. They first explore, well, where could this headache be coming from? When I solve a problem, I don't want to immediately assume that because it popped up in logistics that it's a logistics problem because it could be caused by a quality issue in manufacturing. So, so Integrative says I'm continually tracking the resolution of these problems to make sure that I'm not just moving the problem to somewhere else in the supply chain thinking I've solved it. So those are my two favorite words, integrative and agility. Now, let me give you a really good example and it's public domain because Procter & Gamble, in my opinion, is absolutely one of the best manufacturers in the world. If you talk to Procter and & Gamble people and, you, and, and this is the case for the last 10 years, They'll tell you, look, we'll never get 100% demand forecast accuracy, but 95% is okay. Because by the way, when we get it wrong, we're so operationally good that in that 5% where there was an error, we can still respond exactly on spec and deliver an on time in full uh, order to you know, the Tesco's or, or the Sainsbury's or the, or the Walmart's of the world. So they are so operationally agile that they can respond very quickly to a disruption, 
but they also are very codified in that 95% in that they know exactly what to do and how to deliver always and on time in full. So VUCA still absolutely applies. In fact, I think it applies even more because now we have to build VUCA into our supply chain strategy. We may not, many companies I don't think have done that. I think they just assumed that we could always scramble and that we would be able to suddenly find, you know, a hundred million masks. Well, that's not reality. You know, at best we probably found one million masks. Well, and nobody expects there to be a hundred million masks just floating around. But we gotta gotta know where to go look for them or how to gear up manufacturing so we can produce them quickly. Well, that's what I mean. I think it's almost as though VUCA existed with, like, as though it had parameters, as though uh, VUCA is just here, between here and here, whereas now this COVID-19 crisis has just said, hold on a second, VUCA is way more complicated than that. Volatility and complexity is exponential. Uh, so do you think it redefines our understanding of VUCA? Well, and I think it, it defines safety practices. You know, my one of my my favorite uh, uh, stories I love to tell is that the pharmaceutical industry on average holds two to 300 days worth of inventory, right? So, so you've virtually got a year's worth of inventory sitting around in the system. So when you do have a disruption, there's a damn good chance that if that disruption is only a couple of weeks, you're just going to deplete some of that, you know, 300 days worth of inventory. Well, guess what's going to happen? We haven't seen the, the uh, shortages of these drugs yet, but let the COVID scenario go on for six months and that 300 days worth of inventory is going to start running mighty low. And given that 80% of the APIs are made in China and India uh, and that they're not coming out of China as we speak, how on earth are they going to keep replenishing that 300 days worth of inventory? So here's the point. In a VUCA scenario, we were lucky that we had masses of inventory stuffed away in all parts of the supply chain. We don't have that anymore. We don't even have toilet paper in the United States because the shelves are empty. Well, you, you sent me something uh, the other day about uh, uh, the scenario. Walk me through that. You said, imagine this scenario. You talked about you know, manufacturers scrambling to catch up on an average. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about that? Right. I found that so, interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's, a very famous, there's a very famous expression coined by Professor Hao Li, who's one of the doyens and supply chain from Stanford University, and it's called the Bullwhip Effect. And to any one of the audience, I would absolutely recommend you either read my blog post because I have a very good video of him talking to a Stanford class about the bull, or just go Google the bullwhip effect on, on, uh, on one of the, the, the social media channels. But here's the problem. So what happens is this panic buying because people, for whatever reason, feel comfortable that they've got you know, six months worth of toilet paper in, in their homes. Well, so the stores are suddenly, they didn't, they didn't account for the fact that everybody was going to go buy the next six months worth of toilet paper uh, in one shopping spree. So the stores are now empty. So the stores go back to the Kimberly Clarks and the Procter and Gambles and the Scots of the world and they say, oh my gosh, we've got no toilet paper. So all of the manufacturers kick into gear and they start furiously manufacturing toilet paper. Now, it's a good statistical average that takes about five weeks to replenish an out of stock. So 
while there's nothing on the shelves in Walmart and Shaw's and Sainsbury's and Tesco's, etc., um, while there's no, the, the manufacturers are furiously making this pile of toilet paper. Now, you know, I hate to use toilet paper as an example here, but there's a there's a net net of how much toilet paper gets used on the planet, right? So, in six months' time when all of this toilet paper suddenly gets to those shelves, and this is a big bulky product, there's gonna be boxes and, and supplies of toilet paper everywhere, and people are stocked up for the six, next six months, so they're not gonna be buying toilet paper. So now the stores are gonna be saying, oh my gosh, what do we do? Now we're gonna start inventing campaigns to promote this toilet paper, give it away at a center roll, right? That's the bullwhip effect. The, the manufacturers get a false demand signal, the over, they overreact, they don't have the visibility. As a result of that, they don't have visibility. All of this stuff comes screaming down the supply chain into stores. It gets there late, uh, you know, the, the need is already being fulfilled. And now we're gonna end up in a food case of throwing away months worth of food because now we're gonna exceed expiry date. So, you know, this knock-on effect of what we're seeing in this bulbip effect, is going to live with us for the next six months, and and it's a it's a fascinating principle. Go read and watch Professor Howley's video because it's absolutely enlightening. Demand forecasting, right. pivotal, absolutely pivotal right now. So we talked about it at the beginning, which is okay. We get it. COVID nineteen, we're in this. There's going to be a time to listen to the lessons learned and what have you. But those people that are in the middle of the eye of the storm right now, what what should they be focusing on? Well, you know, the holy grail for the last 10 years, but I don't think we've really, it's hit us between the eyes, is this issue of upstream and downstream visibility, right? So, so when, you're, when you're sitting in the, we were talking about the sales and operations planning process, whether it's happening in a crisis scenario, or whether it's a normal, you know, run-of-the-mill life scenario, uh, sales and operations planning is all about matching supply and demand, right? So the bottom line is, well, if I don't have accurate supply visibility, how on earth do I plan? Because I can't tell you whether I've got 10, 100, or 1,000. So how do I make a commitment to the sales folks who are planning a big promotion campaign on the demand side, right? So first of all, supply side visibility and the ability to accurately deliver um, the supply. So if we need 1,000, make 1,000. Don't, when they ask for a thousand, make 500 and say, oh my gosh, we had a quality problem, so we've only got 500. Now, let's flip that to the demand side of the equation where the demand forecast happens. Well, we don't have visibility because of this connection of all the systems from distributors and logistics and retailers and you know retail pharmacies and hospitals. We don't know where the stuff is. So even though a CEO says, well, I want all my patients to have insulin when they need it, they don't know whether it's sitting in a um, in a distributor or a wholesaler. The same with the liquor industry. They don't know whether uh, the liquor wholesalers are just sitting on stocks of beer or, or, or liquor. What happens is it suddenly pops up in a store and there's a shortage and say, oh my gosh, we didn't know that there was a shortage. So we are not going to get better at improving demand forecast accuracy until we're A, able to deliver reliably from the product supply network. Second of all, that we have accurate visibility of what's going on in the supply network. And thirdly, when we have accurate visibility of what's going on in the, in the demand side of the business. Because 
That's why SNOP doesn't work, is that we haven't had accurate visibility of demand. We haven't had reliable and accurate visibility of what's happening on supply. And you expect people to sit uh, as leaders and make trade-offs, and they have no idea what they're making trade-offs about because they don't even have one version of the truth, they don't have accurate visibility, and they don't have accurate supply. So guess what? Demand forecast accuracy gets blamed, but it's in fact the whole end-to-end -end supply chain. So, so do you think this is the time now to look at, really truly look at the different types of systems, you know, for digital transformation to connect all the dots across the supply chain, across the entire supply network, et cetera? It absolutely is. And I mean, why do you think you've seen this flurry of control towers? You know, let me tell you a little story about visiting a chief supply chain officer, and it doesn't matter, but it's one of the world's biggest consumer goods companies. And he said, Roddy, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm working for this control tower company doing some consulting. And he said to me, remember, this is a chief supply chain officer. He said to me, what's a control tower? And I said, I drew a picture on the board. He said, wow, you know, we've specialized in and, and standardized on a big German ERP system. We can't do that with our German ERP system. He said, tell me a little more. And I said, well, imagine you have 15 instances of an ERP system and we've got all this inventory and all of this planning happening in the business. Where's the one system that gives you visibility across all of your IT architecture? That's the control tower. So there's a reason why the control tower space from an IT point of view has gone crazy. Now, in the same vein, let me say, that that's only visibility. It's not contextual, uh, contextual or accurate, actionable visibility. So what we're learning now is, so what if I can see it? What do I do about it? Can I plug it into an AI model or can I plug it into analytics? Can I predict something? And so this is where SNOP is gonna go in the future. It's gonna look very differently. It's gonna be visibility upstream, visibility downstream, advanced analytics sitting in the SNOP process, models running predictive scenarios. And then we have a better chance of getting SNOP to do what we've been trying to do for the last 10 years. So you paint a very interesting future. I mean, it sounds something, you know, I think everybody's been talking about getting end-to-end -end visibility uh, for as long as I can remember. How do we actually make it happen? Do you think that we have an opportunity here to now, because of where we are, to actually start working towards this? And how do we do it? Well, you know, um, I, I hate to overplay my Amazon example, but, but I literally 15 minutes ago ordered a piece of equipment on Amazon. I clicked on Amazon, I went straight to the item, it said there are two left in stock. I clicked on it, I said buy, I immediately got an email that said, it's, it's, uh, we've recorded your order, and it'll be delivered on Tuesday afternoon, right? Now, so, so what's the point? The point is that Amazon is a collection of all partners around me and my credit card, that make that visibility of all the products they're selling visible to the Amazon network. Everyone on the visible on the network can see exactly what I saw. There's two or three or five or 10 or 15 of these things left. So the problem is if Amazon was one system connecting to an order management system in a, uh, let's say a Husqvarna connected to a logistics provider, connected to a contract manufacturer in China, you'd have to wait for that whole chain of systems to give you an indication that your order was on its way. 
That's not how Amazon works. Amazon's one platform. Everybody's connected onto that platform. Everybody's providing the visibility of what they have to that platform. And anybody, like in healthcare, the patients or the shoppers, can see what's available. That's what's going to change. These long linear integrations of multiple ERP systems and partners in an end-to-end -end network, that is going to go away. We cannot simply run our businesses like that any longer because that's where the five weeks delay to replenishing and out of stock comes from. It's system and partner talking to system and partner talking to system and partner. I don't know if you've ever, and I always have to qualify the statement, played what the MIT call the beer game. And it has nothing to do with drinking. But MIT developed a beer game, which is a game where you have five partners and it's a board game. And you have the customers, you have the suppliers and everybody rolls dice, but you can't see more than one step up ahead of you or behind you. So everything you do is speculative to what's happened to you and what you can see happening one step down from you. You have to play it once because you'll see the bulb playing its effect out. And that's what happens when you have these long linear integrations of systems with all sorts of lead times that simply confuse the end-to-end -end supply chain. It can't work that way. People that I have interviewed during this process have talked about the unintended benefits or opportunities created by the crisis. And one of the things that have come up is the opportunity to change our mindset about supply chain, to change how we view supply chain and create a different business model. Do you think that there is an opportunity here to do that? And if so, how would you recommend we go about that? Well, so that's playing itself out as we speak, right? And, and I think there's one very, very fundamental change. First of all, the chief supply chain officer who's always been seen as, you know, licking labels and kicking boxes and shipping boxes and taking costs out of the business. The chief supply chain officer is now a fundamental key in the leadership team of the business. In many cases, uh, the chief supply chain officer is part of the survival strategy of the business as we speak, because if you can't get goods and services into the business and out of the business to customers, you might as well shut your business down, right? So point number one, the chief supply chain officer is being seen totally different in a leadership sense in the business. Now, you may say, well, so what, right? The first thing that that chief supply chain officer has to do is change the mental model of the supply chain. The, the supply chain is no longer just a string of manufacturing and logistics stuff. The supply chain today starts at suppliers and it ends with the people that buy your goods and services, right? So, the, the leaders together with the chief supply chain officer on the executive leadership team, you know, may not have any knowledge of supply chain, but they're all part of building an end-to-end -end capability of shipping and detecting demand and shipping from suppliers all the way to the customers. So changing the mental model of the supply chain. This is not about just shipping stuff and taking costs out of the business. The third point is, Now's the time to really think about practicalizing and executing the digital transformation strategy, right? It's been a good thing up until now. Everybody said, yeah, you know, I need to be able to say to my investors and the market that I'm doing something around digital. Well, guess what? In, in six months time, if you say I don't have any digital initiatives in my business, people are going to look at you as though you, you know, you crept out of a dinosaur egg. Right. And, and, the, and the, bottom, the bottom line to that is, you know, a little story. I was in Europe presenting at a big supply chain conference 
and a big global supply chain leader in pharmaceuticals stood up and said, I thought we really got supply chain right. And now came digital, now we're all confused. Now I wanna ask you, I mean, how nonsensical is that statement? Digital doesn't change the way that the, the business, it changes the way we work. It changes our work practices. It allows us to see events much faster. It allows us to track our product and services. We better learn to do that. And I think that the chief supply chain officer is gonna be looked at to digitalize the end-to-end -end supply chain as a meaningful digitalization strategy that adds value to the business. Well, I think we've been, as I said to you, we've been talking about digital, digital transformation for a long time. I've even encountered people that have said to me that they have implemented, I don't know, a robotics, uh, you know, a robotic arm into their manufacturing plant, and now they're digital. Isn't that great? Um, they, they, trust me, you see some weird examples. The point is that, you know, when do we start, stop talking about digital and actually start implementing real actionable digital result, uh, digital implementation of things into their business so that you can get actionable results, don't you think? Absolutely. Let me give you a couple of little examples that I think illustrate the point. How many solutions out of COVID-19 have you seen where um, the 3D printing organizations have jumped in and delivered literally within a couple of days valves or masks or connectors where there was a six month waiting time, right? So if you're a chief supply chain officer and part of your portfolio of products needs little widgets, I can guarantee you that in your supply chain risk management strategy, you're saying to yourself, you know what? I need to be really prepared because one day my supplier of these little widgets may go out of business. Where would I very quickly find 3D printing capabilities on an outsourced basis and have us up and running with that product in, in days, not in six months? And that's a simple example of where the chief supply chain officer as part of a risk management strategy is gonna say, you know what, we've got analytics, we've got control towers, We've got predictive modeling. We've got, um, we've got 3D printing capabilities. We've got IoT devices that can broadcast the status of a pallet of vaccine in a cold chain in real time. We don't have to wait until it arrives somewhere to find out that, oh my gosh, somebody left this container in the sun. We've got to throw this all away. We know when it's exceeding its temperature specifications in real time, we can do something about it and not throw the pallet away. So do you think people are taking digital seriously or Absolutely. is it just talk? Absolutely. I, I, I think there are, are lots of, I don't want to call them crisis meetings. I think there's, there are some, you know, all hands meetings happening at business leadership level where they're saying, let's take a good, cold, sober look at what happened. And let's look at how we need to be prepared for the next one. And let's start off with, you know, how do we have visibility? How do we, how do we improve our operations with digital? What can we do differently? Uh, how can we respond faster? How can we see problems faster? You can bet those are gonna be happening if they're not already happening within the next two months. Do you think that it will lead to different uh, ma genetic makeup of teams in supply yes. chain? That's a how very so? good, that's a very good point. You know, the, the, it's interesting to note how many, uh, digital transformation leaders you've got who are different to the chief supply chain officer 
who are different to the chief technology officer, who are different to the CIO, who are not necessarily represented on the business executive leadership team. Watch that all come together in a strategic prioritization team that looks at the business priorities for 2020 and says, I don't care what we planned in, in November nine, uh, 2019. Do we stick by those priorities? Are we going to change them all? And as a strategic leadership team, reprioritize and build up our supply chain capabilities because we don't want to get caught like this again. So yes, teams are going to be different. Uh, teams are going to be multidisciplinary, by the way. It doesn't help to have HR or human capital management bringing on new talent for digital, whereas the chief supply chain officer has no indication of you know, what that new digital talent is. The digital chief digital officer has not got necessarily the say that they need to have in, is this all about data science? Is it all about you know, digital technologies? Is it about supporting the chief technology officer or supporting the chief supply chain officer? So teams are gonna be integratively constituted. And I think that's the point. It's no longer about, am I good at logistics or good at manufacturing? Am I good at the end-to-end -end supply chain embodying all of those functions? So do you think that having a set of uh, diverse people with diverse backgrounds is going to help break the silos that traditionally have been seen in businesses? That's fundamental, by the way. And, and if, you, if you can find a really good uh, chief digital technology officer or digital transformation officer, a really good one is an integrative thinker. They're looking across the whole business and say, well, what people aspects could we digitize? What process aspects can we digitalize? What new platforms in technology can we, can we use to enable digitalization? I mean, this is exactly the space that I'm in in healthcare where you're getting these chief digital officers who are saying, you know what, we're part of a healthcare system. We're not just a pharmaceutical manufacturer. We want hospitals to have the exact visibility of what we're producing so that if they suddenly need additional uh, you know, inventories of insulin or whatever the case may be, they know we've got it, they can place an order and, and place the order in real time. That's an integrative chief digital technology officer or a digital transformation officer. And those are the companies that are going to win. Well, I was just going to ask you that question. So the integrative agile supply chain in 2025, companies that don't apply that model, what happens to them? Well, they better be careful the next time a major disruption comes along, because I think every time we have a disruption, you're going to see those companies that are not prepared are just going to fall out of the trees. Because guess what? The good are going to get better. The worse are going to stay in the same place. So the gap between the leaders and the laggers, it's simply going to get bigger and bigger. And companies that don't do anything about it and move forward after the learnings from the scenario are simply going to become dinosaurs. Irrelevant. Exactly. Well, you know, the problem is the problem is that they won't see it until they live it, right? I mean, you see all these, could we have been ready? Well, you can never be ready for every single set of, so I'm an engineer and I'm a process control engineer. We never designed process control systems to cater for every single event that could possibly occur. But you know what? We did, sat down and did a proper analysis of what's likely to occur and what do we do in the cases when, those, when they do occur. Those events that were completely left field and we had no idea they were going to happen, 
how quickly, and it goes back to my 95% and 5%, how quickly and how agile are we to be resilient to respond to that 5% where it, was, it came at us completely blindsided? Well, I would add to your integrative and agile supply chain, adaptability is also a key trait. Exactly. Mm. exactly. And, then, and by the way, resilience and agility are founded on people, process, and technology. Not one, not each one, but all three integratively combined into a business operating model. Well, that's my, my, it's always been my bugbear. I, I, I find that we've been having the conversation about digital transformation. It seems like it's been dominated by the technology conversation, the tech, the tech, the tech, and people fail to realize that if you lay on top of bad processes and bad people, technology is not going to win. It's not going to help you. In fact, it's going to help you make mistakes even faster. Yeah, completely. Well, on that note, Roddy, it's been a pleasure to have you on the, uh, on the show. Uh, if uh, you all want to see more of Roddy, then uh, by all means, tune in for some more because I'm sure we're going to be having other conversations with you. Maria, fantastic opportunity to talk about this. If you can't see I'm passionate about it, watch my face. Very much so. Thanks so much, Roddy. And thank you, everyone. We'll see you in the next episode of FinTV.